0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Miradian, and joining us today is Richard Fontaine, the President and CEO of the Center for a New American Security, uh, one of Washington's great think tanks. He also served uh, on the staff of the late, great Senator John McCain, and he is joining us fresh back from a highly consequential uh, Munich Security Conference uh, and also will be able to comment on President Biden's historic visit to uh, Kiev. Uh, Richard, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, I should also note that this conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, the late Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Uh, and I should note that Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly Cyber Report, General Atomics, Aeronautical Systems, as I mentioned, also sponsors our broader strategy coverage, uh, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace uh, sponsors uh, our air warfare coverage. Um, Richard, you just got back from uh, Munich and are your arms tired. Um, you know, it, it, there the alliance committed to more resources uh, for the fight. The vice president uh, made a war crimes case against uh, Russia. Nothing surprising there, something I think your old boss uh, would have applauded. Um, alliance leaders also made the case for greater unity and doing more uh, to help Ukraine and to try to do it more uh, quickly, as, uh, as, as Joe uh, uh, Joseph Burrell uh, noted. Um, but there were also some worrying signs, right? French President Emmanuel Macron, while at the same time making clear his support for Ukraine, also said that Russia must not be broken. And I'm going to uh, try to explore that with you in a minute. So there's a sense that everybody will support Ukraine, but then the fear that not enough for them to win, uh, nor enough to damage Russia, rather sort of ins- ensure a stalemate, get to a negotiated settlement that's really in, in everybody's uh, best interests, including the Ukrainians, or so it's uh, portrayed You just got back from there. What's your sense? Are we in it to win it? And if so, are we going to give Ukraine the tools to do so?
1: I heard a lot of resolve about giving Ukraine the tools necessary to defeat the Russians, not to just stop uh, or or avoid losing or or produce a stalemate or something, but actually to uh, reconquer at least all of the territory that has been taken by Russia since February 24th of last year um, and a lot of resolve, a, a lot of unity, particularly on that point. Um, it's interesting because the bigger consideration seemed to be less, uh, at what point does this, uh, do, we, do we sort of bring this to a close, or, or what is the timeline on which we we press the Ukrainians to do more or less, but rather allied capacity and the timeline necessary for Ukraine to be able to make those kinds of gains because it is true that both the United States and Europe are seeing their stocks of military supplies go down. The United States has done over a hundred billion dollars in a year of assistance to Ukraine. The question on everybody's mind is, well, you have another hundred billion dollars for this year and what about the year after that, if it's necessary, same question for Europe. And that's why you saw Zelensky basically suggest that a long war doesn't favor Ukraine uh, because a long war makes Ukraine dependent on great generosity and industrial supplies from the West. And so he said, speed, 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 get us this stuff in greatest quantities you can as fast as possible to try to shorten the war rather than make it long.
0: Do you um, get a sense um, that, uh, you know, you, you said that there was a sense that, you know, folks want Ukraine to win, to retake uh, all of this uh, territory. Um, it was interesting to me that even late last year some of the smartest people I knew at the Pentagon it was only late last year that it dawned on them that hey wait a minute you know there is a direct bright line between um, Ukraine winning uh, against Russia and deterring uh, China right Many in the Pentagon have taken the view that every dollar that goes to Kiev is one less dollar that goes to prepare the nation against uh, against China as opposed to thinking looking at this as conjoined right w- what what is the possible message? That it sends uh, everybody for Ukraine not to win, and as Michael Khodorovsky uh, wrote today, uh, right, he argues that if Ru- that would that could constitute a win for Russia and therefore empower China, how direct is that link? And do you think that everybody now fully understands the link between these two uh, conflicts? Right, as as Wang Yi uh, went from uh, Munich to Moscow to reaffirm how rock solid the relationship between these two countries is. Well, the thing that Russia did here was to
1: uh, overturn one of the cardinal rules of the rules-based international order. And the rules-based international order, when people invoke it, they tend to be wonky. It tends to be abstract. Well, this time it's not. It's concrete and it's real lives at stake. And the cardinal rule is no uh, wars of conquest, no territorial aggression, no changing borders by force. That's exactly what Russia is trying to do. If Russia succeeds in that, it pays some costs, but ultimately successful, that's going to be a very instructive lesson to would-be aggressors in the future, potentially including China. If, on the other hand, the world rallies to the side of Ukraine and punishes Russia and makes uh, the Russian effort unsuccessful, well, that's also a very important lesson for would-be aggressors to see. So there's a lot riding on this. Um, And you don't have to take my word for it. Look at what the uh, Asian leaders have been saying about Ukraine. So, in Munich, you had the South Korean and uh, Japanese uh, foreign ministers there. You had representatives from uh, from Australia and from New Zealand and from Singapore and other places. They aren't saying, "Hey, don't worry about what's happening in Europe and focus on us." Hey, don't spend resources in Europe and on Ukraine. Focus on us. They see these as directly connected because. If aggression succeeds in Europe, it could succeed in Asia. If aggression is defeated in Europe, then the lesson for Asia is hopefully that aggression doesn't pay. And so I don't think it's right to say that there's this sort of zero-sum resource balance between Europe and Asia and every dollar spent in Ukraine is one wasted that could be spent on Asia or on China or something like that. These things are connected in in a very close way.
0: Um, uh, President Macron uh, again, right, is warned that we shouldn't be breaking uh, Russia. But isn't this binary? And indeed, right, I mean, that's Putin's fear that if Ukraine wins, uh, that, that this drives direct cha- change in Moscow. And in fact, right, the, the shambolic way this war is being uh, waged, uh, right? I mean, Putin, in his address today, took a swipe uh, at prigozhin who has been of the uh, leading the Wagner group, who has been increasingly taking shots at Putin. Uh, right. If we were only just unshackled, right. If we just had a little bit more brutality, even my connections can't get us uh, bullets, right. So there is this sense that actually, like Putin loses, he he may fall from a uh, power or be forced from power somehow. What's the right long-term approach, Richard, to take, right, with or without Putin? Um, because, I mean, he is, I mean, I've made this case before, he is the Terminator, right? I mean, you have to crush the life from his eyes. It doesn't mean that there isn't another Terminator there, ultimately, to take his place.
1: Of course, that is true, but I also don't think we know enough about the internal dynamics uh, of politics in the Putin circle to know precisely how firm his grip on power is, or how threatening progression may be to his position, or if he comes out of the war in Ukraine with something uh, like uh, a loss, uh, what that does to Russia. But it does seem, and and given that we we know very little, I think, really, about um how that would work, the idea that we would um not help Ukraine win so as to preserve Vladimir Putin in power for fear that someone might topple him and that that someone might be worse and then be worse. I mean, that's 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 a real stretch. I and mean, we know Putin, Uh, has designs on Ukraine always has designs on Belarus always has designs on Georgia always has probably Moldova as well and you know we know his track record here we have been destroying um, through the Ukrainians some of his capacity to make war but his intent is probably not changed so uh, better instead of trying to game the system uh, and try to you know make these distinctions I think to help the Ukrainians fend off the Russians, at least back to the point where this war began and uh, and then what happens in Russia will happen in Russia.
0: But what does longer term deterrent from your standpoint um, look like ultimately, right? Um, he's going to, you know, or or is this uh, because he does have designs on the Baltics, right? I mean, he's he is an imperialist at heart. He's Been saying this stuff um, right for more than twenty years, twenty-five years. Right, he's pretty clear about resuscitating at least, if not the Soviet Empire, then the Russian Empire. Um, You know, what's what is the longer-term approach we need to be taking uh, when it comes to the Russians?
1: Well, as a deterrence matter, I think you have to distinguish between NATO and everywhere else, and certainly with NATO, the deterrence is if you invade or attack a NATO country, then you elicit a U.S. defense, a U.S. military response. And I think that has been an effective deterrent. So he's had designs on the Baltics and other places for a very long time, um, but he's not actually stepped foot into those countries. There are supply lines running into Ukraine from Poland and in other places but he doesn't attack those supply lines in those countries there's training taking place in germany of ukrainians he doesn't attack the germans uh and i think that's because he knows that any of those things would elicit an american military response that the non-nato countries are harder but i think the template more or less is there which is to say if you know god forbid this kind of thing happens again down
0: the line we do again the kind of thing that we're doing now do um, one criticism of the administration is that it's been moving too slowly. But Europeans uh, that I've talked to, especially recently, applaud the administration for what they regard as a methodical process that keeps the alliance together as we move forward. Right? Germany didn't want to ship tanks without U.S. cover, Washington gave them uh, that uh, cover. The White House has said no to U.S. F 16s. Uh, but John Kirby has sort of left the door open that nations can send their jets, right, suggesting that we would approve, for example, a, a third-party e- export. Is incrementalism a strategic advantage in this case or, or, or a signal of weakness as some fear?
1: I don't think it's really either one. I think more than anything, it's an unprecedented situation, and it's reflective of the administration's desire to help Ukraine while avoiding what they believe would be Unacceptable levels of escalation risk. And that's not a science, it's an art. And so you see the fact that this is an art, not a science, by the fact that every time the administration or the allies in general say that there's some weapon system that will not be provided to the Ukrainians, if you wait long enough, that very weapon system is uh provided right. to the Ukrainians. And so, you know, it was HIMARS and it was tanks and, you know, now it's fighter jets and, you know, one by one, the taboo against providing all these different kinds of systems falls by the wayside. And I think it again, it's it's at root, the administration trying to say what is going to be potentially escalatory in a way that none of the things thus far have been. And ultimately, it's impossible to know precisely what the answer to that is. Now, I can quibble with the administration. I I would be more risk tolerant and uh, try to provide more of these weapon systems as soon as possible, rather than trying to, you know, gauge it in the way that they've done. So I think, you know, the tanks could have gone a long time ago. I think the fighter jets could go tomorrow. I think long range missiles that could attack sites that are attacking Ukraine in Russia and in Crimea. I mean, Crimea, of course, is Ukrainian territory. Um, I I would move on those. But ultimately, that's a judgment call about the escalatory potential of taking those actions. And that, I think, is really what's driving
0: this. Um, The president's visit was seen as a demonstration of American resolve uh, and also a sign of his personal uh, bravery, uh, although his critics say that this was uh, reckless. Um, others say, actually, the visit really doesn't matter because those who support the war get it and those who don't, don't. So you're not really going to be changing any minds there, even though it looks like he has brought the American people and indeed the alliance has brought, uh, right? I mean, they're letting the Russians and indeed letting the Chinese do the work for them, uh, right, in, in, in many cases. Why is symbolism important, right? Kennedy and, and Reagan both went to Berlin as well. Right. And the fact that you remember
1: that Kennedy and Reagan went to Berlin all these years later shows that symbolism matters and symbolism is remembered. And particularly when that symbolism involves the president of the United States. Um, I think this matters a lot. It is ultimately symbolic, but behind the provision of assistance to Ukraine is the political will to continue to do it or not. And that is what is at issue. So in Munich, for example, when there was lots of talk about The length of this war and how long it might be sustained and all these other kinds of things. Behind that was the anxiety about populations in the West not being willing, uh indefinitely to provide huge quantities of military and financial aid. Uh, I think the president going to Kiev and sort of rallying the forces of freedom, so to speak, uh internationally around that, I think probably helps with that political will in the United States and in Europe. It certainly helps with the morale of the Ukrainian people who have now been on under bombardment and worse for a year now. And this was, of course, predicted to be a several days war, not a year plus war. Um, so the political will here and abroad, the the will to fight and the will uh, and the, the realization that the assistance will continue to come politically and otherwise in Ukraine, all of that stuff matters. And
0: I think that this was a, you know, a, a shot in the arm. So it was the right thing to do. Uh, I, I would, by, by the way, I would, uh, I would agree with you. And I find it interesting that those, who, you know, who were saying that it's, oh, it's weak that the president didn't go uh, when Boris Johnson went uh, for, for example, now regarded as, uh, as reckless. So you can't, uh, you, you can't have it it all the ways. people all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, let me. Take you to uh, Putin's uh, address uh, today, right? I mean, he blamed the West. That's that's constant. It was a two-hour uh, address, full of the normal sort of grievances and rants that uh, the the maximum lead, the maximum leader has under uh, has on his mind. Um, but one of the things he just sort of slipped, slipped in there at the very end uh, was uh, to say that he has suspended the the START uh, treaty. Uh, and that's sort of seen as a way to sort of blind our inspectors, uh, and and then also allow him to better intimidate us, right? I mean, as Gary Kasparov has has said, and I've repeated on this program many times, right? He wants to hide behind the nuclear shield while pushing you off the stage uh, uh, with it. Um, we are in a new nuclear age. The Chinese are expanding their nuclear arsenal. Uh, the Koreans uh, have had, uh, you know, a very powerful messaging uh, week. Um, you know, obviously, the Russians have been investing in their nuclear uh, nuclear forces uh, at, as well. How do we need to be thinking uh, about nuclear threats in this age on escalation uh, and even on use? Right At some point, Richard, Vladimir Putin may have decided what a trigger is. And no matter what it is, we basically do. He- you know what I mean? These authoritarian guys sort of drive the agenda to where they want the agenda to go and then they just keep pushing through even when they get 200,000 casualties, right? How do we yep. need to be thinking in this this new era? Well, on the
1: question of new start, um, from the at least from the reports I've seen, what he said was that he was suspending Russian participation, so that's the transparency measures, but not withdrawing from the treaty. So presumably the cap on strategic warheads still would apply. I mean, either way, it's quite unfortunate because the arms control safety net, so to speak, between the United States and Russia is all that's left as a safety net between the United States and Russia. And there's been some form of guiding arms control agreement in place since 1972 until today. And the only thing left now that uh, the intermediate nuclear forces agreement and conventional forces in Europe and these other things have sort of gone belly up. The NATO-Russia Founding Act, all of this is—is is this new start? And he just—he just suspended participation, so
0: that's not good. Um, you know, and you, you don't have to be the president of a Washington think tank, but yes, I, I like your plain-spoken approach. Yeah, to I mean, this you know, not good,
1: right? I mean, so so that's not good. Um, you know i think the chances that putin would use nuclear weapons in ukraine are very low but they're higher than they were and they're higher than we should be comfortable with i can tell you a very reasonable story why putin won't use nuclear weapons uh tactical nukes for example in ukraine because it wouldn't get him it wouldn't solve the problem he has it wouldn't get him all that much necessarily on the battlefield you'd have to use multiple ones there's a long extended line in the east the opprobrium of the international community including countries that have been supportive like china uh would be you know very much at risk all of this stuff so all all of that all of that suggests the costs of doing so to putin would significantly outweigh the the benefits The you know ukrainians are not going to get shocked into saying okay take the territory the west is not going to get shocked into saying okay let's negotiate in fact the opposites true. except but I could tell you a pretty good story of why it was a bad idea to invade a country with 150,000 troops and go to Kiev and try to topple the government and kill the leader and take over the country and occupy it indefinitely and attach it to your own. But he did it anyway, and so, you know, the the as we see it, the the, the rationality applies, and I think the rationality of the cost benefit analysis is comforting, but only to a degree. Because, again, you don't we don't know precisely under what assumptions Putin is making decisions and precisely what his calculus is. And, you know, when you're talking nukes, you're talking about, you know, low probability, extremely high consequence uh, act. And even if it was a nuclear, a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine uh, that for some reason was not as destructive as we would think, the world is a different place the day after nuclear weapons are used on the battlefield
0: for the first time since 1945.
1: So um, I think we have to take this stuff very seriously.
0: Do you um, get a sense that we are, that this is helping sharpen, right? I mean, and I should put point pointed out, right? I mean, we're in the midst of a generational nuclear modernization of our own, right? So it's not like we're, uh, we're sort of uh, not paying attention, right? Every element from uh, airdrop weapons the B sixty one program, uh, the uh, strategic nuclear, uh, the, the ballistic missile program, as well as the ballistic missile submarines, are all uh, being replenished and, uh, or, or rather, I should say, modernized, uh, along with a lot of investment in the in the nuclear infrastructure, so that the nation can actually develop a new generation of weapons as well. But do you do you get a sense? That are nuclear thinking. I mean, you have a lot of friends who went into the administration, as as every administration. Um, do do you get a sense that folks are really thinking about nuclear stuff in a way that they have not for decades now?
1: Yeah, I do, and and I think you can see some of the. It, so it's what you described on the on the Russia side, but of course it's also the projections that China will be at a thousand or so nuclear warheads by the end of the decade, and has you know multiple silos and so forth, and so uh china is uh rapidly and significantly increasing its nuclear arsenal and of course russia and china are working together we're not working with either one of those and so that um puts even before putin's announcement today puts in real tension the notion of a bilateral arms control agreement between the united states and russia that seeks general parity in strategic nuclear warheads if China's not part of that and is sort of doing its own thing and the United States has to deter both simultaneously. Um, But if you look at the administration, I mean, you know, there were a lot of proposals when they came in and some talk about in the Nuclear Posture Review adopting a uh sole purpose doctrine that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons would be to deter defeat a nuclear attack as opposed to other forms of attack catastrophic attack there was even some talk which i don't think was terribly serious but about a no first use pledge or something like that there was a lot about uh you know uh, reducing the role that nuclear weapons play in in national security and most of that's gone out the window um to this point the nuclear posture view is pretty traditional in its language and so forth the modernization plans are continuing and i think that's just a recognition of the fact that uh, unless and until our adversaries and potential adversaries give up their own nukes, then we're stuck with having to live in the world we live in. And that includes uh, us having a responsible nuclear posture of our own. Um, uh,
0: Well, well said. Um, What are the lessons from Ukraine that are the most relevant to continuing uh, to deter China? or uh, God forbid, Richard, uh, if they miscalculate over Taiwan, uh, to successfully fight it? Well, one is that the thinkable is
1: possible. I mean, one of the things that I was struck by uh, in the Munich Security Conference was a panel in which the German defense minister was there, and they were talking about weapon stockpiles and drawing down stocks for aid to Ukraine and the inability of Europe to produce in production lines uh, munitions as fast as they're being used up in Ukraine and so forth. And the German defense minister said, why is that the case? Why why are we in this situation? He said, because we thought that this, we'd never see this kind of war again. Certainly not in Europe. Land on land, a state on state land war uh, in Europe, territorial conquest. And that was supposed to be outdated, long gone. You know, the new wars were going to be of information and hybrid threats and cyber and you know all of this other stuff and here we are talking about tanks and trenches and mortars um so unfortunately the thinkable is thinkable and that includes a potential chinese attack on taiwan that we have to be ready for i think another lesson is that it's much better if you're trying to make a a help uh, a country to become uh, resilient um both before and and after an attack, it's better to get them the stuff before the attack begins than after. It's pretty hard to get them the stuff after. Now, we've been doing that quite ably in Ukraine because we have, because Ukraine's got uh, NATO countries on its borders through which things travel and the Russians haven't attacked those supply lines. Taiwan is, I think, probably everyone knows is an island. Uh, It would be Hard, much harder for China to take uh, if it sought to do so in an amphibious landing than Russia's entry into Ukraine, but it would also be much much harder to resupply the island after the fighting began. So anything that we'd like Taiwan to have, we should get it to them before the fighting begins, not after. And then I think the important part—I um, mean, we've we all learning kind of an industrial production lesson here um, with munitions production and kind of the nitty-gritty of what it takes to actually defend oneself. I think there are lessons there. And then finally, the, the importance of rallying the world around a cause. I mean, when you have uh, interested and active in the outcome in Ukraine, not only European powers, but countries as far apart as you know Singapore and Australia and New Zealand and South Korea and Japan, um, that's consequential on multiple fronts, the diplomatic front, the economic front when it comes to sanctions, the military fl- front when it comes to aid. And that's the kind of thing that I think would be necessary uh, if, God forbid, the the balloon went up with
0: China and Taiwan. I I just want to one one follow up. Right. I mean, you know, basically, the German defense minister was talking about a lack of imagination. uh, Right. And and, you know, after 9-11, Richard, it was, wow, you know, who would use airplanes to attack buildings? Um, Then. You know, it was well. Who would take artificial reefs and you know, or or you know, take reefs and turn them into artificial islands? Um, You know, who'd fly a balloon over the United States for uh, reconnaissance and espionage? Although there are now conflicting stories about whether or not we just you know blithely allowed it to go over the country, or whether we deliberately allowed it to go over the country uh, to see what it was up to. Sort of as, as, as some have argued. When you see a cyber attack going on, sometimes you let it go on a little bit longer to sort of be like, "Hmm, I wonder what they're up to. Do you think imagination has caught up to threats? I mean, do you think that, you know, when you have your private conversations um, with folks uh, in, in the administration and across Washington, that people are thinking as imaginatively as they need to about threats and what could happen?
1: Generally speaking, yes, but I think I'd be very careful because a failure of imagination can be very dangerous, but too much imagination can be dangerous as well. So, I mean, look at the balloon thing, right? So we imagined that these other three things floating above the North American landmass was also could also be somebody's surveillance balloons. And so, you know, we got F-22s to shoot sidewinder missiles into them. And then turns out they were probably, you know, some kid's science project or something like that. Um that wasn't very consequential. But look at the war in Iraq, where before, because of our experience in 9-11, because we had not imagined what actually happened. We imagined a whole lot was possible with Iraq there. Saddam Hussein who has weapons of mass destruction could transfer those weapons to mass destruction to some terrorists because he has these networks. And then they in turn would come across the Atlantic with those things and then set them off in some city in the United States and produce a mass casualty attack the way that we had never seen before. It was a threat so acute, we need to topple the government and occupy the country, make sure that doesn't happen. Well, that was too much imagination. So you can't, there's no substitute for human judgment in these things. Um, so, you know, I wish it was one answer on imagination, but there isn't, it, only, it doesn't only militate in
0: one direction. <laughs> I, I, I liked your case though, that why too much imagination can be as bad as a lack yeah. of, uh, imagination, right? It's like death by analysis. We have better ways of analyzing. And then you just realize you'll, you'll spend your time just analyzing, um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken um, said uh, during uh, the Verkunda Tagung that you just returned to, or that's its old name, um, that the U.S. suspicion that China actually uh, may soon start to overtly supply weapons to Russia. And in fact, experts say that Beijing has already been doing that through third parties. Wang Yi is in, uh, you know, visited uh, Moscow after Munich, as I mentioned, and, and Xi Jinping is, is going to be in Moscow uh, soon uh, as well. Let's, for the sake of argument, say that these two get together, right? I mean, the worst nightmare, right, is Henry Kissinger and Peter Rodman and everybody has warned us, right? Whatever you do, keep the Chinese and the Russians separated. But they've pledged, you know, the relationship is never more rock solid, uh, endless uh, friendship. And I'm reminded that over the past decades, economic sanctions haven't curbed Iran. They haven't curbed North Korea. Um, They haven't really worked all that well against Russia. So what, Richard, do we have in our toolbox if these two vast countries, maybe with the acquiescence of India, and by the way, a whole bunch of other countries around the planet that actually don't like to be dictated by us, actually decide that they can separate into another coalition, Right, that the, the Cold War separation is already underway, and they're the ones driving the bus, not us, and, and how we respond to that, ultimately, in a, in a fashion that changes their course meaningfully yeah, on the specific
1: question of China providing weapons overtly uh, or even, I guess, covertly but directly to Russia, uh, I, I believe the reason they haven't done it this far is not because they believe that by doing so they're going to elicit punishing sanctions by the United States and therefore the cost is higher than the benefit. Maybe. But I think um, I think the the Chinese believe that that Europe is in play geopolitically as a entity, and that by doing this, uh, they could lose Europe. I mean, as recently as this weekend, Wang Yi was in Munich and, you know, he picked up on some of the old Macron language about strategic autonomy for Europe. And he said, yeah, 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 you know, Europe should seize its strategic autonomy. Well, who is it supposed to be strategically autonomous to the United States? Because China, I believe, sees Europe and the United States as severable powers. They believe they're going to be in a long-term uh, period of competition, if not confrontation with the United States, they believe that's not necessarily the case with Europe. So they've had a different kind of economic and charm offensive uh, toward Europe than they've had certainly toward the United States. But what is probably the single best way of poisoning the well with Europe and getting it to align more closely to the United States in the, in the approach of China, it would be at the time of Europe's peril. China actively aids the aggressor, and that is what's at issue here. And I think that has been a deterrent because China doesn't want to have to own the fallout in Europe from being seen as, you know, adding the aiding the aggressor. Now it may overcome those qualms if it believes that Russia's on such a back foot that it could, uh, you know, fail utterly. Um, So it's going to make that calculation. But I think. The U.S. role in this narrow question, I guess, anyway, of providing weapons should be to do what the administration has started to do, which is publicize over and over again and in Europe, the Chinese potential and potentially intention to supply the aggressor at a time of land war in Europe so that the price that China would pay reputationally and geopolitically in Europe for doing so is high and hopefully could deter them to a greater degree of doing it in the first place.
0: Uh, but over the longer term, right, if the world right I mean, there's this sense that well, we don't want to be in another Cold War, whereas we already probably have been in another Cold War for a while, right? I mean the whole Russians, uh, whole Chinese strategy and the Russian strategy, right, was uh, let their greed take care of this, right? They want oligarchs money. They, they need to sell the yachts. They need to sell the luxury goods, the jets. Um, the vacations right Russians have still not been stopped from vacationing all over Europe oligarchs have regular Russians can go um, the Chinese same thing right we're gonna let you know the the their their greed will give us the rope with which to hang them right w- what does this look like as we look five, 10 years from now uh, Richard and right India does not want to choose sides right a more authoritarian India under uh, De- uh, Narendra Modi a lot of countries, want to fall kind of in the middle. They don't like to be dictated to. They don't like strings attached to them, at least not the strings we put on them. They seem perfectly comfortable with the, the strings Beijing and Moscow put on them. How do we need to be thinking about what this confrontation looks like as we uh, standoff, right, competition. I don't put your adjective there. What does it look like and what are the things we need to do to hold us in good stead as we look forward 5-10 years? I think there's a few things that you can
1: dismiss that have sort of been in circulation. I mean, for years, this was this idea of, you know, do a reverse Kissinger. So, you know, Nixon and Kissinger opened to China to balance the Soviet Union. Well, now China's a big challenge. We're going to somehow uh, align with Russia to together balance China. That was never going to happen and is not going to happen. Um, since the war in Ukraine began, there have been a few folks that said, well, actually, this shows that, Russia is the dangerous power, not China. So, you know, let's kind of try to team up with China to contain Russia. That obviously is not going to happen either. Um, And yeah, you're right. Most countries don't want to make a big strategic choice between the United States and China or the United States and Russia. Most countries want some mix of security and economic benefits from everybody if they can get them. And I don't think that we can or need to ask countries to make an overarching, you're in this solid geopolitical block or that one, a la the Cold War. But there's going to be a million individual choices that the United States and other countries are going to have to make about what they are willing to do or not do with respect to the competing imperatives of US policy or Russian policy or China policy. And we want them to be able to Uh, have the freedom to be independent and sovereign and hopefully to uh, not acquiesce to Chinese and Russian preferences over time. And that then in turn, you know, implies a whole program of activity uh, when it comes to these countries in question. Um, But I think that we're just very likely to be stuck with a long-term period of pretty frosty and competitive relations with China and even worse relations with Russia, as long as Putin is in charge.
0: What does a thoughtful long-term strategy um, regarding China look like? Um, there are those who say well you know we can continue doing trade as you know right I mean the the Eric sayers model right I mean I don't care whether my lawn furniture is made in China I may care if a lot of other things are made in China and it looks like we're concerned about a lot of things made in China uh, and and for good reason right that wealth is being used to build military capacity to be used against us um and just like technology is being stolen before we started taping we talked about, uh, some of the things that both Senators uh, uh, Warner and Rubio uh, from the select in, uh, Senate Select Intelligence Committee have been talking about, about reducing China's access to technology. Ultimately, what, what is it that we should be doing? What is it we want? What is the goal? Because we talk about competition. Competition for what? What does this look like? What do we want to achieve? Is yeah, it deter- right? How do we need to fundamentally think about what it is we want if we're going to execute a thoughtful strategy? Right. So th- this is, I think, in some ways, the big question. I read a little
1: article for Foreign Affairs last year where I said, you know, there's great bipartisan support for a competitive approach to China. I think there's a lot of consensus about the diagnosis of the long-term China challenge. There's increasing levels of activity, whether it comes to, I don't know, military, domestic innovation, economics. Whatever. So we've got basically most of the components we would want for a long-term China strategy with one exception, which is an objective. Because we <laughs> know what we don't want, right? We don't want China to dominate Asia. We don't want China to uh, spread its illiberal values. We don't want China to do this. We don't want China to attack Taiwan. We don't want China to do that. Okay, got it. We know what we don't want. What do we want? Unless you think that, you know, Gorbachev, in China is right around the corner, and we won't have to worry about this problem anymore because it's all going to fall apart, which I think is extremely unlikely. Um, then we're stuck with this relationship. So, what is the objective of our of our policy toward China? And I think it's abstract, but I think our objective should be to make China unwilling or unable to overturn the most important elements of the international order that we care about the most. Now that's abstract, but it means you don't do several other things. One, you're not actively trying to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party in some sort of regime change, you know, kind of thing. Uh, nor are you just acquiescing, saying, you know, we're going to somehow empower the moderates or, you know, we need to cooperate and all this stuff. You look at the things that China is doing that would matter most, and you resist those, you compete against those, you build up the um, the 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 capacity and the, and hopefully the willingness of allied and partner countries to do the same, and you build up your own sources of strength. So, I, I think uh, that is the objective, and you have to, of course, then specify precisely what it is you mean by those in concrete terms. Uh, so, in that sense, the you know Chinese military activity in Asia is more important than Chinese military activity in. Latin America and the Western Hemisphere and, and Africa, even though China's both trying to get a base in Cambodia and a base in uh, Equatorial Guinea. Well, the one in Cambodia matters more because of, the, you know, and so you can sort of then start to set priorities around Chinese activity and then develop responses to it under the assumption that we're going to be in this competition indefinitely. And that, I think, has got to be the approach. But we're not there yet. Some of our, you know, the Japanese are actually out ahead of us. We've defined what we don't like and what we don't want. We've defined some of what we're going to do about that, but we haven't defined what it is we can live with. And ultimately, I think we're going to live with a China that is governed by the Chinese Communist Party indefinitely. But it could become unwilling to overturn the order that we like because it discerns an interest of its own in some of the rules or it bec- become unable because it is you know because of its demographics its economic problems it becomes harder and harder for it to project power or because we're so good at deterrence and 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 we've built up so many partnerships in the region that it's constrained so there's a variety of
0: paths
1: to that objective but that I believe is is the objective or
0: should be anyway and, and you're encouraged uh, because it's been pretty rapid progress over the last couple of years, hasn't it? By, with the, given how the United States has marshaled, I mean, despite Roloff Schultz going to Berlin, of course, right? Which did not strike the right tone, perhaps. But overall, are you satisfied with sort of the arc and, and the way people... I mean, I would not have imagined, especially under Marcos, right? I mean, there was the sense that he was more indebted to China than Duterte was, and yet he strikes arguably one of the most important security agreements we've struck in the Pacific in a long time. Yeah, and you've got to hand some credit to
1: our own diplomats, but the lion's share goes to Xi Jinping himself. I, I mean, in, in especially over the course of the last few years, the height of the pandemic, and you know, American political disarray and the whole thing, China had the golden opportunity to show the world that its leadership would be benign, if not beneficial to other countries in the world. And how did they react? They gotten a border set of skirmishes with India that has really turned the Indian government in an anti-China direction. Uh, They practice blockading Taiwan, including shooting missiles into Japan's EEZ and now, you know, Japan has become even more suspicious of China. Uh, I mean, you can sort of go around. Uh, what was most striking to me is when, when uh, the Chinese took the two Canadian citizens hostage, basically, right, uh, and kept them for several years and really turned popular opinion and government policy in Canada. They turned Canada against them. Do you know how hard that is to do? to turn <laughs> yes. Canada yes. against you. If you can turn Canada against you, you can turn almost anybody against you. So you can go around and you look at whether it's popular opinion or, pu- or public policy in Europe as a whole, in Britain, in the Netherlands, in Eastern Europe, in India, in Japan, uh, in Australia by meddling in the elections uh, or meddling in the democracy down there, certainly in the United States, in Canada, they really catalyze this new way of understanding what Chinese will and activities are all about And that, in turn, has created the ability to forge some of these coalitions on issues. But, you know, that was no automatic thing a couple of years ago. They squandered the best opportunity they'll ever get to show that
0: the future would be different through the way in which they've conducted their foreign policy, by and large. Um, uh, a couple of minutes. Uh, we've got about three minutes left, and I've got uh, a couple of questions. One is: um, As President Carter enters uh, hospice care, uh, many are reconsidering uh, his tenure in office, his legacy. Uh, the president put uh, human rights at the center uh, of his foreign policy. That's something your former boss uh, and mentor, uh, John McCain, uh, would passionately argue at every opportunity. Uh, this administration is trying to be doing that, uh, trying to do that as well, but is being buffeted by reality. Right? What's the right balance, Richard, between a human rights democracy agenda. We heard a couple of weeks ago from Peter Van Praeg uh, of uh, the Halifax Forum. Uh, you know, what's what's the balance? It's very hard to answer that in the abstract. It's sort of like when
1: people say, well, do you want security or liberty? And people say, well, I like liberty, but not as, I mean, it, it's the specific case in which you make those trade-offs uh, that is really material. So it's very hard to say that in the abstract. But look, I wrote my grad school thesis on Jimmy Carter's human rights policy because it really was the first time in American history that a president came in and said he was going to have a human rights-centered foreign policy. Uh, You can point to a bunch of lapses from that, including during the Carter administration. This is the president who clinked glasses with the Shah of Iran uh, and said that he was an island of stability in the Middle East right before he fell and in part due to the brutality of his secret police. Okay, got it. But the key is to have human rights as a consideration in the policy process to not dismiss it as just the soft stuff that's nice to have as opposed to the the hard stuff of, of interest. They're both important, our values and our interests, and there's an interplay between them. And so have them, have them both considered uh, each time we're making a policy decision.
0: Um, do we have the right approach, right? I mean, we are at inflection points in a quantum age, artificial intelligence age, 5G uh, you know, there's a confluence of technologies that may fundamentally change um, everything, including warfare. Um, are we thinking thoughtfully enough on what all of these mean? Because it would seem that whatever it is we're buying is what we're buying, whether or not Ukraine shows that if I can see it on a battlefield, I can kill it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're trying, but the pace of technological change is so rapid that it is hard to assimilate each of these new developments and then try to determine how this is going to change national security foreign policy statecraft in general i mean one example generative ai how will generative ai and the ability of artificial intelligence to generate on its own novel content that previously never existed um how is that going to change foreign policy I don't know. But ChatGPT is, you know, just the the newest level of these kinds of things. Uh, And, you know, it's changing fast. So we we have to try to figure these out as they come along. My own place, CNAS, is doing a lot of work on technology and national security. Other places are doing great work as well. But this is, you know, an area where Applying the, the brains and the imagination, as we were talking about before, is unusually
0: important in this area because it, it, there's just a huge amount of uncharted territory here. And, and I should tell uh, the audience that you guys do some extraordinary work on that. Uh, Paul Shari has his new book on AI out. Uh, Stacy uh, Pettyjohn, uh, Becca Wasser, uh, the whole team there are doing terrific work. And in fact, Stacy uh, and Becca are going to be on the Air Power podcast on Thursday. And your very own Jim Townsend, uh, Richard is gonna is part of the Washington roundtable, as you know, uh, every every Friday. Now, let me ask you one last uh, question, and it's a brief one, and we ask everybody, right? If you were gonna give an example of good strategy and, and and one example of bad strategy, what what would those be, right? Good strategy worth emulating bad strategy as a as a warning. Um for policymakers.
1: Well, it would probably be cliche, but what the hell on the good strategy. But I mean, ultimately, the containment strategy is formulated in, you know, the 1940s worked. Right. Which was the to say the objective is not accommodation combination with the Soviet Union it is not the rollback of Soviet communism through military force or otherwise but rather the containment of the geographic expansion until when well until such time as one of two things happen either Soviet foreign policy mellows enough that we don't have to worry about it that much or the place collapses under its own internal contradictions that's exactly what happened so That was good strategy, and it was sustained, you know, more or less decade after decade until it actually uh, produced the desired outcome. You know, bad strategy. uh, Well, I mean, you know, look at the war in Afghanistan, uh, a million mistakes by, you know, many thousands of mothers and fathers who gave birth to those strategies and so forth, or maybe it was just a lack of strategy. Um, But I think it was... um, whatever good strategy looks like uh, and whatever good strategy could produce, that was not the outcome we saw, as we saw most dramatically in the, in the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and the fact that we spent so many resources there over 20 years and uh, Taliban's in charge of more territory now than they were
0: on September 10th, 2001. Richard, uh, absolute pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. would like to have your voice on uh, regularly uh, on this uh, channel. Uh, thanks so very much. And uh, congratulations to a terrific team. You guys really do some uh, awesome work and great people. Uh, And thanks very, very much for, uh, for making them available to us all. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Lots of fun.